When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, all of you unshaken saints out there. I got a great comment this past week where one of you said how much you appreciated being called that at the beginning of these episodes. Uh, just feeling like, wow, yeah, I am. I'm an unshaken saint. Or to borrow the language of section 46, I, I am seeking so to be. And so to all of you, I hope that you do feel that as a, as a personal recognition of the efforts that you're making to be able to sink your roots deep and establish your foundation upon the rock of the Redeemer. There's nothing more important than that. And so if these lessons from the Doctrine and Covenants help you in that, then I'm, then I'm all for it. Uh, again, you unshaken saints, welcome. I'm Jared Halverson, looking forward to the time that we have today to study sections 60 through 62. It's interesting, the, in the curriculum there's a title for each lesson. And I'm always interested to see what the curriculum department will decide uh, to name a lesson. This week's, I believe they called it, All Flesh is in My Hand, which is a great title. Uh, they typically choose a phrase from the scriptures, which is what I like to do as well. Uh, and that's a great one. We are in the Lord's hands. And we'll see today, especially in section 61, some of the challenges that the saints are facing uh, that would make them want to feel safe in the Lord's hand. But the more I pondered these, these sections and prepared this lesson for you this week, uh, I came up with a different lesson title. Again, from a text from the, from the verses that we'll be studying today. But I like to call this lesson, A Way for the Journeying. Because that's what is happening in these revelations. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, section 52, especially where all these companionships are named. And Joseph's up in Kirtland, but he's starting to send people down to Missouri to be, begin to establish Zion. And he pairs up these, these missionaries and sends them off on this journey. Well, by this time, well then, that was 50 to, 51 to 57. Then last week, 58 to 59, which was such a blessing to teach. I hope it was as as mutually edifying as it needed to be, but it was a powerful experience for me uh, to teach those sections last week. And that's when Joseph is in Zion and receiving revelations for what should be taking place there. Well now, section 60 to 62, it's the return trip. Joseph and Sydney are heading back to Kirtland. Uh, many of the missionaries that had already arrived are headed back to Ohio as well, having served their mission to, to Zion. Others haven't quite gotten there, and so they're kind of meeting in the, in the middle. There's a lot of journeying going on. And to think of our own lives as our journey back to God, I just thought, what a perfect way to describe these revelations, especially on the return trip. We've already left His presence to come down and, and establish Zion here upon the earth. We're engaged in our mission now. But how are we doing at, our, at planning for our return journey? So as we study these revelations today, a lot of which revolve around the decisions that we make along the path, I hope that it does help give us some insight on how we should pursue our journey back to our heavenly home. Of course, there is a literal component for this as well, uh, of returning from a mission. I don't know about you, but that was a hard day for me. I thought it would be hard to leave my family in California and go to Puerto Rico on my mission. That was my farewell after all. And it was hard. Uh, there was some homesickness and some culture shock and some transition period. Uh, but honestly, once I metabolized a missionary life and, and completely 
surrendered to the Lord and, and gave him the reins and said, I'll do whatever you want me to do. That mighty change of heart, just it changed my perspective on the mission to the point that at the end, I just didn't want to come home. That was the harder farewell to leave behind the life that I'd lived as a missionary. I remember sitting at the mission home at the piano, playing the opening hymn for this little meeting of all the departing missionaries. My parents were coming to Puerto Rico to pick me up. An incredibly kind member of our ward back in California had said, uh, we know you can't afford to go to, to pick him up, but here's our frequent flyer mileage. Uh, we want you to go pick up your son. And it was such a, an incredible experience to to put them through the ringer as missionaries, honestly. I said, Dad, my dad was my stake president. I said, Dad, don't release me yet. I want at least uh, most of the days of our time together, I want to be a full-time missionary because you and mom are going to be full-time missionaries too. And I worked them into the ground. And we went and taught you know, less actives and new converts and, and investigators that we had and went back to all these different areas that I had, had served in and, and, we, and we kept teaching. My parents were like, we don't speak Spanish. I'm like, that's okay. I'll translate for you. Uh, Mom, I need you to, to teach this principle. Dad, I want you to bear your testimony of this, uh, of this uh, idea, this doctrine. And I translate. And I remember at the end of the, the days that we were there, my mom said, that was the worst vacation ever. And she laughed and I said, yeah, but it was an amazing mission, wasn't it? And she's like, yes, it was. And we just had a great experience. But, but I remember sitting at the piano, my parents hadn't yet arrived, and, and I was playing, just dreading the thought of them walking in. Not dreading their presence, not dreading to see them. It had been two years I was excited for that. But dreading the thought that their arrival signaled my departure. And I remember we were, I was playing the Spirit of God like a fire is burning, and I heard the door open. And I just knew it was them. And I, I didn't turn around, I just kept playing stoically <laughs> and just almost praying in my heart when I turn around don't let it be them don't let this be real I just want to stay I don't want to journey home this is my home this is the work of God and I just want to be engaged in it for the rest of my life well the Lord has interesting ways of of honoring our desires and and granting our our hopes because here I am 25 years later still with the privilege of being able to teach the gospel which I am so grateful for. But there does come a time when a full-time mission translates into a full-time life of discipleship. And we, and we change some things. It is this journey home. And so as we study these revelations today in Doctrine and Covenants 60 through 62, keep an eye out for those kinds of ideas. Uh, as you are pursuing your journey home, what would the Lord have you know? Section 60 uh, these elders that had been to Zion are now wondering how to get home. Section 52 is much more specific as far as this is the journey you should take. Remember some go speedily, go straight to Zion. Others uh, go by way of Detroit. Others, well, just as long as you spread out uh, and don't uh, journey in each other's track or build upon one another's foundation. We want to cover as much ground as possible uh, as we, we have our same identical uh, starting point. We have the identical ending point. But we want to take different journeys along the way to cover more ground and to bless more people. Well, now it's time to go home. And they're wondering, well, what route should we take now? And section 60 begins in verse 1, Behold, thus saith the Lord unto the elders of his church, who are to return speedily to the land from whence they came. Behold, it pleaseth me that you have come up hither. So on the one hand, they get their, their immediate answer. How are you supposed to return? You're supposed to do it speedily. I'm not going to tell you the exact latitude and longitude or what trail to follow, uh, but you need to get back to Kirtland as quickly as you can. And why? Well, because there's work to do back there as well. 
There was work to do here in Zion. There was, there was work to do along the way. There will be work to do along the way home. But the work that needs to be done is back in Ohio for now. Remember, we're going there to live the law of consecration and to be endowed with power from on high. And who better to help build the temple, the house of the Lord in Kirtland, than those who have been part of, of dedicating temple ground in Zion, the center place, the place of gathering. You've kind of seen the end from the beginning. So now go back home and help others prepare to receive that endowment of power that will prepare them to journey to Zion when the time finally arrives. I hope return missionaries get a sense of that. Again, for me, I was dragging my feet because I thought nothing will be like a mission again. And while there is some truth to that, uh, I've never been able to dedicate full-time work as I did as a missionary. But the thought of continuing another mission, uh, just changing as a new transfer, the farthest one that you'll, you'll ever have, but there is work to do back home to prepare other people to find their way to full-time discipleship as well. So get back and get on with this mission. I remember feeling that when I did get home. And my, my thought was my next mission is to teach at the MTC. It's what I wanted more than anything. And I remember I'd gotten home. We had a family vacation planned to Lake Tahoe. And so we went up there. And, and I, I just remember waking up every morning thinking, all this water and nobody's getting baptized in it. That, something's wrong here. Uh, and I just couldn't sleep. I kept the missionary schedule. I reread Jesus the Christ in that one week that I was there. I just, I missed that, that, that lifestyle. But as soon as we, the vacation was over and I got back home, I'm like, uh, Mom, Dad, love you, but I got to go. Can I borrow the car? They're like, well, sure. Where are you going? I said, Provo. They're like, what, huh? It's like 10 hours away. I said, I know. I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, but I drove 10 hours, applied to work at the MTC. They give you a little, uh, here's your situation. I want you to be a missionary and teach us. And so I did this little teaching model. And then I filled out the paperwork. And then I got in the car and drove 10 hours to get back home. By then, it was the middle of the night, and my, I woke up my parents to tell them I was safely home, and, and mom said, oh, yeah, the MTC called a couple hours ago, uh, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I hope it's with good news. And I called them the next morning, and they said, yeah, you did a great job. We'd love to have you come teach for us. Uh, can you start tomorrow? And I laughed. I said, uh, yeah, I, I'm in L.A., and they're like, you're in L.A.? You, you were just here in Provo yesterday. I said, well, yeah, that was just to apply. I, I, I wasn't moving there yet. I didn't know. And they laughed and said, yeah, well, don't come tomorrow then. Uh, come on Monday uh, or as soon as you can and start to teach. And, and I loved that, to, to get speedily home, to get on with the next mission. If you remember what we studied a few times last year in the Book of Mormon, where Alma, for example, as soon as he finished one mission and came home, remember this one verse where it said that it was at the end of the year that he returned? But then it says, and in the beginning of the next year, he was off on another mission. You finish one calling and you accept another. Uh, to the, the idea of returning speedily, to me, teaches an important principle. To, to finish one opportunity to serve and then look around. There will always be more. Uh, and get on with it and do it speedily. Now, in addition to that immediate response, just get back to Kirtland as quickly as you can. The end is just this beautiful reassurance. It pleaseth me that you have come up hither. Thank you for your service. One of my favorite things as a member of the bishopric in releasing people, which was always a bittersweet experience for them, was just to let them know that you're about to be underwhelmed by the church's gratitude for all this labor that you have performed in their behalf. Because it's all, in, uh, all that can express their, their appreciation, show by the uplifted hand. 
and a bunch of raised hands in, in the chapel, especially if your service has been long and arduous, seems a little bit uh, underwhelming. And so I would often tell them, accept that, and more importantly, accept the feeling behind it from the people that you served. But if you really want the sense of gratitude for what you've, what you've accomplished and what you've offered, then turn to the Lord. It is far more than a hand raised. It, are, it is arms outstretched to express in divine ways the kind of, of gratitude that only God can express to you for the work that you have done in His behalf. I am pleased that you've come, that you've put, rolled up your sleeves and put your hand to the plow and that you've made a difference here in a place that I've called you. Now, with that behind us in verse 1, and that feeling of, wow, my, my labor is acceptable. It's pleasing to him. We'll buckle up because verse 2 shifts gears somewhat. Yeah, verse 1 ends, it pleaseth me you've come up hither. Verse 2, but with some I am not well pleased. And why was that? For they will not open their mouths, but they hide the talent which I have given unto them because of the fear of man. Woe unto such, for mine anger is kindled against them. Now that last phrase is strong language. I almost get a sense that, the, that God is like, oh, you're, you're be, being quiet because of fear of man? Well, I'll give you something to fear. Uh, he's, he's not the, we're not sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's not that. But this disappointment on, on God's part of, why didn't you open your mouth? It's the whole reason I sent you. I, it pleased me that you came. I'm grateful that you're here on this mission. But take advantage of the opportunities that surround you to open your mouth and let it be filled. And as your mouth is filled, their heart can be filled. As spirit-to-spirit -spirit communication takes place. But there's got to be an open mouth. With that phrase, hiding the talent which I've given unto them, our minds should go to the parable of the talents, where here's uh, five for you, and here's two for you, and here's one for you. And the five and the two, they multiply them. They, they put themselves out there. And there's a risk. Uh, I might lose some of this investment. But the, the final servant with the one that, out of complete fear, ends up burying his. And it does nothing. He's afraid to lose it. And yet, what ends up happening? He does lose it. Because the Lord of those servants takes it and gives it to the, the one that did the most with what they'd been given. Remember section 46. Seek the best gifts, covet them earnestly. So many gifts you already have, but remember always the purpose for which they are given. And what was that? For the benefit of others, that all may be strengthened, that all may be edified, that all may be taught. Why did God give you the talent of, of even just having the gospel, of having recognized its worth? in your life, to the point of being willing to go out and, and come on this mission, which pleases God. But it doesn't please Him when we hide that talent, because we're afraid of what people will think of us, or afraid of their rejection of what we're offering them. Yes, wherever there is investment, there is risk. But typically where there is risk, there is great reward. And especially when the talent that God has given us comes from Him and it is meant to bless other people. Thrust in your sickle with your might. The field is white, all ready to harvest. Open your mouth, it shall be filled. Make a difference. Don't let worldly worries stand in your way. There's actually one other analogy that comes to mind when I ponder verse 2 uh, about 
just being unpleased with us on God's part because we're hiding our talent. I don't know. I, I wear a white shirt and tie like practically 24 seven. Uh, I do change before I go to bed, uh, but I've been known to throw football with my sons out in the front yard in a white shirt and tie. I've been seen mowing the lawn in a white shirt and tie. Uh, I, it's, I'm never underdressed to things. I'll put it that way. Uh, but I, often I'll be at the store, be like a grocery store or Walmart or whatever. And I don't know what it is about this dress uniform, but I'm amazed at how often people will come up to me, strangers, and just ask if I know where something is. Uh, and I always think, Walmart employees don't dress in white shirts and ties, but I guess I just have that customer service look, perhaps, uh, or I've dressed in such a way that, oh, that, that guy probably works here and must know where things are. And, and I'm, I'm always apologetic, like, I, I'm sorry, I don't work here. I, I, I don't know where that, that item is. But what's interesting is to realize there are people, and you've probably had this experience too, where you do need help and you know it. And so you are scanning the aisles wondering, where are all the employees? <laughs> where are the people who can actually help me? When I'm at uh, Home Depot, I, I'm scanning for the orange apron. And imagine a, a worker there that just chose not to wear it. Because it does look a little funny and, uh, and I'm afraid of what people might think of me. No, they, they want to know who can help them in the ways that they need. And I sometimes worry that there are people in the world, we'll see this in section 123, they're only kept from the truth because they know not where to find it. And another way to phrase that based on section 60 verse 2 is they're kept from the truth because they know not whom to ask for help in understanding it. They're looking around for the orange apron or the orange vest and we're not wearing it. They don't know that we know the gospel has been restored, that we have answers to their spiritual questions, that we can help them with, the, with their journey back to their Father in heaven. Especially when I lived in Tennessee and members were the minority, I would often ask my institute students, do your friends know that you're LDS? Do they know you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? And perhaps more importantly, do they know that you're willing to talk about it? I'm not saying you have to force feed the gospel or shove it down their throats, but to be open enough with it, with your identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ, that they can, you're wearing the orange apron. They're, you're willing to show that you're, that you're open-mouthed and open-minded. So come and ask. I will not hide the talent that God has given me. Now, getting over that fear of man is important in two ways. One is for the sake of the person that you could be teaching. The other is for your own sake. Because in verse 3, we're warned, It shall come to pass, if they are not more faithful unto me, it shall be taken away even that which they have. Remember, this is life on the treadmill or life on the escalator. We're either running forward or climbing up or it's taking us back. Life just works that way. And if we're not growing line upon line and precept upon precept, then we're falling back. We are not faithful, and so the cup holding that faith, the level begins to lower. As I've said before, God doesn't tend to send much water through a kinked hose. It, it was not just for us. It was meant to get the water to the end of every row. And so, pour it out. Verse 4 then, For I the Lord rule in the heavens above, and among the armies of the earth, and in the day when I shall make up my jewels, all men shall know what it is that bespeaketh the power of God. You sense the reassurance that God is trying to give to these hesitant, fearful elders of the church? I'm in charge. 
I rule in the heavens above. I'm over the armies of the earth. I'm trying to gather gemstones to place in my crown, gems that are rare and hidden and often formed under intense pressure. Welcome to life as a servant of the Lord. Welcome to life as a disciple. Are you willing to be that rare servant of God that opens their mouth at every opportunity to share what the talent God has given them for finding and accepting truth? Are you willing to undergo that pressure of the fear of man until it changes you into a fearless disciple of Jesus Christ? I'm here to make up my jewels. I want you to be one of them as you seek the other jewels of God that are willing to, that are resonating with the revelation that he is willing to give. At some point, all men and women will know what it is that bespeaketh the power of God. And that's the Holy Ghost. When their spirit resonates with the spirit, they, they know the power of God. So teach by that way. In verse 5, But verily I will speak unto you concerning your journey unto the land from whence you came. So now we're coming back to this title that I've given today's lesson. A way for the journey. And here, let me talk to you about this journey. Let there be a craft made, or bought, as seemeth you good. It mattereth not unto me. And take your journey speedily for the place which is called St. Louis. So here's step one. They're on the western edge of Missouri in Independence. The eastern edge of Missouri is St. Louis. That's on the Mississippi. Uh, Jackson County or Independence is on the Missouri River. But the Missouri River that's come down from the north now starts to snake over the east and it goes, kind of cuts right through the middle of Missouri. And so get a craft. You can make it. You can buy it. But get to St. Louis as quickly as you can. Then we'll, I'll talk about, in a minute about where you go from St. Louis. Okay? But it's interesting, on, on the one hand, this idea of getting there speedily. We saw that back in verse 1, right? Return speedily to the land from whence you came. But there's some, some flexibility here as well. Remember, we've talked about this as far as another contrary to prove. The fixity and the flexibility. The uniformity and the diversity. The iron rod, which is kind of set in stone, and this is the way it goes, versus the liahona, where there's, oh, the spindles are moving, and, and is there only one right way? Well, here, you get the fixity in get to St. Louis as quickly as you can. But you get the flexibility in, well, how are you going to get there? You need a craft, and you can either make it or you can buy it, as seemeth you good. And then this amazing phrase, it mattereth not unto me. We'll see that a couple of times today, as well as in later revelations. And to me, if we, if we think of God as a micromanager, and most of us in terms of employment don't like the idea of having a boss that is a micromanager, that, that forces us to do everything in the exact way that he or she would, would tell us to. Well, in this case, God is not, he's revealing himself. I'm not a micromanager. Yes, there are things I manage. I am over the armies of the earth, after all. I do rule in the heavens above. But on the other hand, there are other things I leave to your agency. Now, remember, that's another contrary, agency and inspiration. How much does he ask me to think it through, study it out in my mind, instead of just uh, calling on him and asking him? Remember that section 9, Oliver Cowdery? You took no thought, save it was to ask me. You've got some homework to do. Well, in this case, brethren, do some homework. How do you want to get from Independence to St. Louis? How are you going to cross the state of Missouri? Now here I'm suggesting a craft, but how you acquire it, make it or buy it, totally up to you. It, honestly, it doesn't matter to me. 
And I, for one, am fascinated by that concept of certain things that just don't matter to God. Now, on the one hand, everything matters to Him because you matter to Him. But in terms of option A or option B, or take the whole alphabet soup, there are things that God is totally okay with. And sometimes if you're not getting an answer to your prayers, when you're weighing options and you're trying to decide what to do, and you present it to the Lord, there are honestly times where he, he basically says, and sometimes he says it by not saying anything, it mattereth not unto me. Obviously, a yes answer fills us with reassurance and courage. I know this is what I'm supposed to do. That's been confirmed to me. But in other ways, this kind of an experience should give us similar reassurance. God really doesn't care if I do this or do that. I can't go wrong then. So I'm going to weigh my options and decide what works best for me in these circumstances. To me, it's a beautiful thing that God gives us that kind of leeway. After all, we, He is trying to help us grow up in God. And one of the big parts of that maturity and that growth is learning to trust our own decision-making. I've sometimes asked students who come in in the throes of a difficult decision. Again, I work, for the most part, with those in the 20s, which is known as the decade of decision. And as they come in distraught over big decisions, I'll sometimes ask them, who do you think God prays to when he has a tough decision to make? And they're like, huh? God praying to someone? Or is there like a heavenly grandfather? And I always laugh. I'm like, I'm not trying to speculate on deep doctrine. I'm, I'm trying to point out, he doesn't pray and ask somebody else. He knows himself. He trusts himself. And if we are ever to grow up in him and become anything like him, our, our dependence needs to grow into interdependence. And we need to be able to prove this contrary of agency and not just inspiration. To me, it's ironic that people tend to one or the other. And they're either the type, no, oh, I'm all agency. And I, I don't want to know what God has to say about this. And others that are so scared of messing something up, doing something in the wrong way, that they lose hold of agency and are paralyzed because they only want and wait for inspiration. We just saw the fear of man and hiding your talent. Well, what if the, the man that you fear is yourself and the potential mistakes you might make in decision making? We have to overcome that fear too. One of the talents God is trying to help develop within us is a talent for making decisions. And sometimes it's by simply saying, it mattereth not unto me. You really can move forward in whatever direction and do so with faith. Now in verse 6, let's see what happens after St. Louis. From thence, let my servants Sidney Rigdon, Joseph Smith Jr., and Oliver Cowdery take their journey for Cincinnati. So kind of like Hiram Smith in the earlier revelation, your trip to, to uh, Zion has to go through Detroit. Well, for Joseph and Sidney and Oliver, your trip uh, back to uh, Kirtland needs to go through Cincinnati. What are they supposed to do there? Verse 7, In this place let them lift up their voice and declare my word with loud voices, without wrath or doubting, lifting up holy hands upon them. And then one of my favorite phrases, For I am able to make you holy and your sins are forgiven you. Now I want to come back to that last phrase. But the immediate instruction for Joseph and Sidney and Oliver, go to Cincinnati and lift up your voice. Declare it loudly. I, I love that, that description of how you're supposed to preach. 
Compare it to the fear of man that is causing some to hide their talent? No, do it loudly. I love that that's the word used uh, when Jesus Christ calls Lazarus forth. He called with a loud voice. There is confidence there. There is faith. I'm, I'm asking the impossible uh, to, to raise the dead, but I'm doing loud enough that everyone can, can call me out if it doesn't work. The, the, the faith of Jesus, I want everyone around here to know what I am asking and expecting of God. Power to overcome the grave. Life flowing back into someone dead. As we preach the gospel, are we doing it loudly? And that's not just in decibels that I'm describing. It's a matter of faith. Opening my mouth and letting it be filled. Also the phrase, without wrath or doubting. That's an interesting combination of missionary attributes. Sometimes as we're trying to declare God's word, when we're loud and clear about things, do we sometimes overcorrect almost? There's a Goldilocks zone here, too. We want to be bold. That's the, you, you better open your mouth and, and not hide your talent. Don't be fear, afraid of man. But to be bold, but not overbearing. That's when it gets too far on the opposite extreme. You know, it's too loud. Or in this case, it's not without wrath. There's anger there. There's contention. And as Jesus himself taught in 3 Nephi, contention is not of me. It's of the devil. I honor agency from, from sunup to sundown. Uh, people need to decide for themselves. So avoid wrath in your teaching. Also avoid doubting. Now on the one hand, that might seem obvious. If I'm trying to teach the gospel, I, I rely on testimony and faith, and I, and I bear that witness to people. I, I believe it myself. That's why I'm trying to convey it to other people. But it's interesting the approach some missionaries take, and some members, where they're trying to prove everything. It's almost like there is no doubt about the the gospel that they're trying to share. There's no doubt about the propositions that they are extending. But what I sometimes worry about is, but are you doubting the Spirit's power to convey that truth in God's own way? Remember section 50. If it is by some other way, it is not of me. It has to be by the Holy Ghost with mutual understanding and mutual edification and mutual rejoicing. Trust in that Spirit that leadeth people to do good, Hiram was told ages ago in the Doctrine and Covenants. So if, if preaching with wrath is contentious and maybe Bible bashing, part of that Bible bashing, I wonder, is a sense of doubt in the power of the Holy Ghost or doubt in the person's ability to, to feel that spirit and be converted by it. And we end up trying to prove everything as if we can tell the Holy Ghost, oh, you're, you're not needed here. I got this. I can logically convince them and prove to them that it's right. There's the, the irony of that overshow of, of conviction is actually an, an underplaying. It's almost like they have too much faith. I know that's a strange way to describe it. But too much conviction that, no, it's, it's just true and I can prove it to you. And that too much faith in that suggests too little faith, doubt, in the Holy Ghost. And so to be able to step back and simply share the gospel, bear witness of it, no contention, no wrath, no proving, no doubt, and just leaving them with the Holy Ghost, trusting that God will be able to to convert and help people find the truth on their journey. After all, the Spirit is able to do that. Just like the Lord says at the end of this verse, 
about something he is able to do. I am able to make you holy. Can you trust me in that? Now this goes so far beyond missionary work. And I love the fact that he's, he's promising that holiness to the missionaries themselves. So often we think of, it's, I'm here to help other people become holy. And yes, you are. But it's, lose yourself and you'll find yourself. And you'll find a holier version. I think, especially with those who are struggling with the same old sins, especially those of an addictive nature, if you fall back into it and you begin to lose any hope in your eventual change, this verse, that phrase is so powerfully reassuring. It's the Lord is saying, I've got this. Don't doubt me. I am able to make you holy. In fact, I'm going to forgive you right now. So how he ends it. And your sins are forgiven you. Keep those two side by side. Your sins are forgiven you. I'm washing the garment white. I'm, I'm wiping the slate clean. That is justification. You were in the, the pit and now you're back out of it. Okay? Your sins are forgiven. You've been released from prison. Justified. But the other side, sanctification. We're not just out of the pit, but now we're climbing the mountain. That's the part of, I am able to make you holy. Not just to absolve you of past guilt. Just because a, a convict comes out of prison doesn't make them a model citizen. They no longer owe their debt to society. That is justification. But to become holy, that is sanctification. Jesus is able to do both. Remember back in section 20, the constitution of the church. We believe that justification through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. Your sins are forgiven. And we believe that sanctification through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. I am able to make you holy. I just love that he puts himself out there. I can do this. He says that several times near the end of 2 Nephi when he's talking about the restoration of things and this great and marvelous work. And in two verses, back to back, he repeats the same phrase. I am able to do mine own work. It's when he's describing the learned will not be able to read a sealed book and the unlearned will wonder, well, how can I do this? I've got this. Joseph, if you're worried about translating ancient scripture by the gift and power of God, it's the gift and power of God. It's not about you. So simply be faithful. Trust me. I got this. I am able to do mine own work. And if God's work and his glory is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life, here the Lord is reassuring these missionaries, these church leaders, and through them he's reassuring each of us. Even in our, in our darkest days where we're beating ourselves up over committing the same stupid sin, trust me, I'm able to do mine own work. Trust me, I am able to make you holy. Your sins are forgiven you. Okay, you're repenting, you're trying, and I justify that. Okay, I will honor that repentance. And now with a clean slate, now that you're out of the pit, you ready to go climb? Honestly, in my opinion, that's why the Lord justifies us at all. It's like he, he sends this rope down and he, and he helps draw us out, pull us out of the depths of despair of our own sinfulness. He justifies us. And then we kind of dust ourselves off and we thank him, thinking we're done. And he smiles and says, you know what these ropes are actually meant for? Mountain climbing. Yes, they do a great job of rescuing people from their pits, but really they're to ascend the heights of this mountain. Do you want to keep climbing with me?
Now that you trust the rope and the hands on the other end of it, now that I have justified you, now that you feel forgiven, are you ready to progress to a level of holiness that far surpasses the innocence that I have just offered you? In that story arc that defines the plan of salvation, namely creation, fall, and atonement, when you've hit that fall stage and you just long for the, the elevation of Eden, getting back, you can't go back, there was cherubim and the flaming sword, but to climb out of the pit and return to the elevation of Eden, that is justification. That's regaining innocence. But God wants us to go so far beyond mere innocence. He wants us to achieve holiness. But that's a much steeper climb. It requires the ropes of the Redeemer. But as you've come to trust in those ropes, and like I said, trusting in the hands that are holding them, through justification, now you're ready to ascend to the, to the summit. Sanctification. I am able to make you holy. Now verse 6 and 7 were for the church leaders. Joseph, Sidney, and Oliver. Well, go by way of Cincinnati, lift up your voice, we, we got this. Verse 8, meanwhile, is for everybody else. Let the residue, so all the other elders that have come down to Zion from, from Ohio, let them take their journey from St. Louis. So everybody's going straight across uh, the state of Missouri. But once you get to St. Louis, we're going we're gonna to divide. Those three to Cincinnati, the rest go two by two and preach the word, not in haste, among the congregations of the wicked, until they return to the churches from whence they came. So whatever branch of the church you came from originally, go back to it. Go two by two. Again, there's safety in numbers. There's a second witness of the things that you're trying to teach. Interesting that they're told you'll go among the congregations of the wicked. Keep an eye out for that phrase. We'll see it a few more times today. So you're going to be teaching people who need it most. And, and again, if, if you've struggled with the fear of man there in, in Zion, well, let me, let me help you overcome some more of that fear by sending you into the congregations of the wicked. Yes, there will be opposition. You're going to need to trust in the power of God. But also, and this is a phrase that is interesting, don't do it in haste. Now, we just saw twice the idea of going speedily. But remember the details. The, the speed section of the journey was across the state of Missouri. Get from Independence to St. Louis. Do that part speedily. But once you've arrived, then slow down. You, you cross the state quickly, but now that you're in, in St. Louis and you're ready to go back north to Ohio, take your time. Preach the word. There will be opportunities to serve all around you. Take advantage of them. And then verse 9, And all this for the good of the churches. For this intent have I sent them. The good of the churches from whence you came. You've left them, now you're going to return to them. You're going to be preaching on the way down, you're preaching on the way back. And when you return to that home church, you will have stories to tell. I love missionary homecomings. I love the experience of listening to their experiences. And their missions, often some far-flung place, do become a blessing to me back in their home ward. It is for my benefit for the good of my home ward, that they've gone out and have now come back better prepared to make a difference here. 
Remember, it's one of the reasons we return speedily from that mission, because we've got more missions to perform here at home. And as they come, having journeyed along this path, having shared the gospel there and back, now that you're home, wow, the kind of things that you can do here to bless your home ward, it is for the good of the church. It's one of the reasons, for this intent have I sent them. Yes, I intended, part of God's intent was all the good that you would do out in the mission field. But if you've heard this analogy before, that the MTC is to the mission as the mission is to life, I love that, because then your mission is simply an MTC experience, meant to prepare you for a lifetime of service in the kingdom. For that intent have I sent them. Now you're well prepared, well trained. Come home and keep making a difference. Then in verse 10, let my servant Edward Partridge impart of the money which I have given him a portion unto mine elders who are commanded to return. This is Edward Partridge in his role as bishop in charge of temporal affairs. People have been consecrating to him. And you have all these missionaries that now have to make a long journey back to Kirtland and are going to need some, some money for provisions to be, be able to make the passage. And so provide for them. To me, it's interesting how, how much emphasis goes on, on a missionary and how many people are there to support them and to build them up and be so excited for them. And we send them to a missionary training center so that they, they're well prepared to know what to do when they're out in the mission field. But I worry sometimes that we're not doing as good a job of verse 10 for return missionaries. I mean, on a, on a purely temporal level, it's like, I don't have that many white shirts. Again, my, my son and I just went suit shopping for his mission uh, last week. And, and looking at the list of all the things he has to get, it's like, well, uh, you know what you're getting for your birthday, right? It's going to be a lot of white shirts and ties. Uh, but to, on the way back, it's like, now that's all I have are white shirts and ties. Uh, and so are we going to re-outfit you when you get home? Now, again, that's the purely temporal. But I do worry sometimes... We did such a good job with their MTC, should we have given them an RMTC, a Return Missionary Training Center? To me, honestly, that's one of the things I love about teaching Institute. In a way, Institute is the RMTC. Now that you're back, how do I integrate, remember I've talked about this several times, that so much of life is to isolate and concentrate so you can then reintegrate. Well, they isolated themselves as missionaries and focused, concentrated, on this missionary life, full discipleship. Well, now, how do I reintegrate what I've learned as a missionary into my life as a member of the church? Far too many return missionaries don't make that transition well. And is it on us? Are we doing enough to help them? Are we providing for them on their journey home? It's similar to what Bishop Partridge is told to do. Now, not everybody needs as much help as others. In verse 11, he that is able, among those missionaries, let him return it by the way of the agent. And he that is not, of him it is not required. Again, this is consecration. It's here to meet your needs. And so if your needs are there, then, then keep it. If the needs aren't there, then return it by way of the agent. But we do need to offer it across the board, since we don't know from the beginning who needs it and who doesn't. By the way, that should also put a little bit of burden on the missionary themselves or on the recipient of whatever help there is. Do I really need this? Do I need it all? And is there, if there's an excess, I mean, I got it because someone else considered their finances had an excess. And the surplus they donated, they consecrated. And that's how I'm receiving this at all. Is, is it sufficient for my needs or is it beyond it? 
Because if it is, if they were wise enough and humble enough to recognize a surplus, can I do the same? I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to share this experience, but in one of my areas in the mission field, was, I've been out for a long time and my shoes were the proof of it. I was at a point uh, that I had to be careful about walking through puddles because my socks would get wet from underneath. And there are holes in the bottom of, of the, my shoes. And I remember I was, I was kneeling down talking with a member, an investigator on the back row in the chapel. And, and the Relief Society president walked by and must have seen the bottom of my shoes and perhaps my socks poking through the holes. Uh, well, unbeknownst to me, she had gone around through the Relief Society and come to, came to me at the end of, ch of church that day and handed me an envelope and said, Elder Alberson, tiene que comprar zapatos. You have to buy shoes. And I'm like, what? And I looked at this envelope and it was full of money, mostly in $1 and $5 bills. This was not an affluent ward. It was just a small branch of consecrating saints. And I remember looking at it and then looking back at her and saying, absolutely not. I am not taking money from you amazing saints just to buy a pair of shoes for myself. I'll be okay or I'll ask my parents back at home, but, but no, I cannot do this. And she just smiled and refused to accept it. She was like, I don't even know who to give it back to. Everybody chipped in. I didn't take any receipts. Elder, here, buy yourself some shoes. And I just remember being so humbled by that, but also looking at the money that was in there and thinking, I don't need this much money to buy a pair of shoes. I mean, it would have paid for a, a, a really good pair, but I didn't think I needed a really good pair. And in a moment of where thankfully the Lord helped my feelings match those of the, of the ward members, they had been generous and discerning, and I thankfully was able to be generous and discerning in return, realizing I'm not the only missionary here that has holes in their shoes. And with what they've given me, instead of getting one really nice pair for me, I could buy two pairs. One for me and one for another missionary, which is what we ended up doing. There's power in that discernment. There's power in that generosity. There's power in offering, but also power in, in being careful in terms of how you receive and how much you receive. Do you really need it? That, by the way, is an important part of, of a bishop's discernment and a person's discernment in terms of needing fast offering assistance. Is it there to preserve life or to preserve lifestyle? We all need to be careful with that and, and take that which will cover our needs. But if you don't need it, give it back. If you're able, return it by way of the agent. And again, and, and don't beat yourself up if you can't. I love how, how generous and, and calm the Lord is in all of this. He that is not, of him it's not required. If you need it at all, then spend it. And don't think twice about it. Now verse 12, Now I speak of the residue who are to come unto this land. You see, not everyone had arrived at the land of Zion yet. If we started in Kirtland, same origin, trying to get to Zion, same destination. Some people, I mean, really took the roundabout way covered a lot of ground on the way. And so you kind of get the sense of return missionaries and, and pre-missionaries crossing paths. And you've got this certain residue that are coming unto this land. They're, they yet, haven't yet arrived at the land of Zion. So in verse 13, their instructions, Behold, they have been sent to preach my gospel among the congregations of the wicked. Ooh, them too. Wherefore, I give unto them a commandment thus, 
Thou shalt not idle away thy time, neither shalt thou bury thy talent, that it may not be known. Sounds like that same parable is still on the Lord's mind. There were those that already got to Zion and hid their talent because of the fear of man. Well, now the Lord is trying to circumvent that potential problem. And even before you get there, let me remind you, you're going to be among the, the congregations of the wicked. You might have some reason to fear man. They're not the type that are, that are very open to accept your message. I mean, remember how unsuccessful the Lamanite mission had been among the white settlers in western Missouri. Okay, this is going to be a hard mission. But don't idle away your time. Don't bury your talent. Keep the orange apron on, please, and keep your mouths open. It's actually interesting to ponder the verbs that we often use when it comes to time. Here it's don't idle it away. But we sometimes talk about killing time. Ooh, that's violent. Or maybe just wasting time. A little bit better, uh, we spend time. But I, I've read enough of the Journal of Discourses that often it'd be a general conference and they didn't go it by the book, you know, it's two hours. It, it was just some speakers would begin their talk by saying something like, seeing as there is yet time to be improved upon, I will share this message. And then they, they, they share this message. And I love that. There is time to be improved upon. You've got the time. It's going to be passing one way or another. We might as well leave it better than we found it. So here, don't idle it away. Don't kill it. Don't waste it. Don't even just spend it. Improve upon it. Make a difference with the time that you have. Then verse 14, After thou hast come up unto the land of Zion, you reached your destination, and hast proclaimed my word, you served that mission, Thou shalt speedily return, proclaiming my word among the congregations of the wicked, not in haste, neither in wrath, nor with strife. So verse 14, in some ways, almost summarizes everything we've read in this section so far. Once you've been designed and performed your mission there, speedily return to Ohio, because you have yet other missions waiting for you at home. But also, in the same verse that talks about speedily returning, go fast, there's also, but don't do it in haste. You're like, wait, what? What do you mean, go speedily, but not in haste? That's an interesting balance. Now, the best example I can think of from the New Testament is when Jesus heals the woman with the issue of blood. Because what else is going on there? I mean, there, it's such, it seems from Christ's side, such a calm scene. We talked about this last week, remember? Who touched me? And he waits, as Peter says, everybody's, and yet nobody. Uh, and, and the woman finally has the courage to come and confess. But remember what else is happening? He's on a 911 call. The story of the woman with the issue of blood is interwoven with the story of the raising of the daughter of Jairus. So Jairus is on this 911 call. He's rushing to Jesus. You've got to come and help save my daughter. You picture him trying to clear the streets, right? I mean, the, the, the siren is sounding, the lights are flashing, the ambulance is working its way through as quickly as they can. Please save my daughter. And Jesus is, is beelining it, following Jairus to get there, and then stops right in the middle of an intersection because somebody honked. Who honked at me? Right? Who touched me? And you picture Jairus going, come on, come on, come on, we've got to get going. What do you mean, who touched you? Uh, there's no time to stop. It's actually right there that I love the detail you find in one of the accounts that the daughter of Jairus was 12 years old. Seems like an unnecessary detail. But also another gives you the detail that the woman with the issue of blood had been suffering under this condition for 12 years. I love the, the, the match there, that poetic balance, as if Jesus were saying to Jairus, for the last 12 years, you've had joy. 
But for the last 12 years, this woman has had sorrow and suffering. You can wait, my friend. Believe me. Not even death is too late for me. I have all the time in the world. Yes, I can speedily rush to meet your needs. But if I find someone in need right here along the way, then I cannot be in haste. This is beyond the wrath and strife that we saw in a previous verse as well. I'm among the wicked. Uh, I'm not going to get angry with them. I'm not going to strive with them to the point of Bible bashing or, or uh, contention. But my favorite phrase here is the not in haste one. Even as you are speedily returning. You can be on your 911 call. You can be rushing to the daughter of Jairus. But if you see a woman with an issue of blood along the way, then pull the emergency brake. Give her the time and attention she needs. Go speedily, but not in so much haste that you're missing opportunities to serve all around you. There was actually a story about President Spencer W. Kimball. He was in South America at a stake conference, and a bishop in, the, in one of the stakes there uh, had pled with President uh, Kimball, will you come and visit a member in the hospital in between conference sessions? Now, there's not a whole lot of time. And, but President Kimball was the type that to always give his time to people in need. And so he and the bishop rushed off to the hospital in the short amount of time they had between state conference sessions. And, and they were, I mean, this must have been a younger elder Kimball. Uh, and he, they were running through the hallway of the, of the hospital. But the bishop said, as soon as they got to the hospital room and entered the door, something changed. And it was the, the speed of elder Kimball. I mean, he's probably still breathing heavily from the, the sprint up the stairs and down the hall. But as soon as he entered the hospital room, everything changed, and it was so calm. The bishop said it was as if President or Elder Kimball had all the time in the world and calmly talked to this suffering member about their situation and their hopes, uh, just talked with them, gave them time, gave them a blessing, and nothing about this visit was hurried. It's almost like the bishop thought, President Kimball does remember that we have to get back for the next session of conference, right? Uh, we rushed here, but now it's just so calm and unhurried. He's giving this, this suffering saint all the time and attention that he can. And then, once the blessing was done, once the visiting was over, they calmly got up, slowly walked to the door, and as soon as the door was shut behind them, they were sprinting down the hall again <laughs> and speeding across town to get back to church. I love that mental image uh, here in section 60 of speedily and slowly and then speedily some more. That is the daughter of Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood. Go fast because there is so much work to do. But slow down so that the person you're serving knows that it's about them that you're not just trying to get past them to move on to the next assignment. I'll admit, that is a hard balance to strike. I'm always amazed that bishops seem to be able to do that when they have such a packed schedule. Uh, when somebody comes in to confess sin, for example, you don't want them to feel rushed, like, okay, you've got five minutes before my next appointment, so can you get, can you get this out? I'm amazed, and, and, and God bless every executive secretary in the church that is, that is trying to honor people's needs and the bishop's schedule. Uh, they're between a rock and a hard place, believe me. 
or in this case, between a rock, namely the passage of time, and a soft place, namely the bishop's heart. But striking that balance between speed and calm uh, is what we're aiming for. Now, verse 15, shake off the dust of thy feet against those who receive thee not. This is going to be among the congregations of the wicked, after all. So prepare yourself for rejection. But don't do that in their presence, okay? Not in their presence, lest thou provoke them, but in secret, and wash thy feet as a testimony against them in the day of judgment. There's an interesting balancing act, too, between justice and mercy. The justice of, okay, they've rejected you. And so you're washing off the dust from your feet. That, we see that from the New Testament. But don't do it in their face. Remember uh, in that little shaker mini mission where Parley P. Pratt made them that mistake and was like getting up and shaking his coattails before them saying, well, then I'm, I'm free of your, of your blood and your sins. And that did not go over well with the shakers. Remember, they were angry and cast Elder Pratt out with, with his tail between his legs. Don't, don't be in their face. Remember, we're trying to avoid wrath and strife. Yes, there is a judgment to be passed, but leave it in the Lord's hand. If you've done your job and opened your mouth and not hidden your talent, then you can wash your hands of responsibility. You've done what you were asked to do, but leave the final judgment in the Lord's hands. Leave your testimony of what you've done and the efforts that you've expended, but then let Lord, the Lord judge. Verse 16, Behold, this is sufficient for you, and the will of him who hath sent you. Let this be enough instruction. I'm not going to tell you every single step of the way. I'll give you from Independence to St. Louis. For some, I'll give you from St. Louis to Cincinnati. For others, it's just St. Louis back to Kirtland, uh, whichever way you'd like to go. Just make a difference along the way. That's, that's enough for you to know. And then verse 17, And by the mouth of my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., it shall be made known concerning Sidney Rigdon and Oliver Cowdery. The residue hereafter, even so, amen. I mean, Joseph will be with Sidney and Oliver after all. That's the Cincinnati group. So you've got the prophet with you. More uh, instructions and directions will be forthcoming from him. Uh, the rest, just go and do what I've told you. That's enough. That's my will for you. And I love the end. The residue hereafter. Remember, we've seen that of, I'll tell you what to do up until the next conference. And then once we have the conference, I'll give you the next set of marching and orders from there. Uh, the residue hereafter. Line upon line, get used to that. And well, they didn't have to wait long to get some of that residue. Section 61, they're on the journey. They're, in fact, along the Missouri River. Remember, I don't care if you make the craft or, or build it yourself, but you need to get going. You need to cross speedily. And so they are. But this is an interesting moment because what they end up doing is they get canoes and they're, and they're cruising down the Missouri River to get back to the Mississippi River. That's uh, St. Louis. But the Missouri River is intense. I mean, honestly, in that time period, if you were a, a steamboat captain, yeah, a pilot of one of the ships that, that would go down these rivers, you got paid extra if you had to flow through the Missouri. And similarly, if you were sending goods down the Missouri River, it cost you extra to do it. Because this was a tough river to navigate. For most of the year, it wasn't navigable at all. It was like three months of the year were actually fairly safe enough to actually journey along it. In fact, in the Joseph Smith's Revelation book that John Whitmer would keep and, and record the revelations for, for safekeeping, uh, in, in John Whitmer's heading that he wrote for it, he said that this revelation, section 61, came on the river destruction. And then in parentheses, it's like, uh, I mean the Missouri. 
But to call it that, the river destruction? Does life sometimes feel that way? Where we're cruising down this river and it, it feels like we're about to get destroyed? Now, a lot of this danger, this destruction, was completely literal. And when you've got all these rivers coming together and you have uh, the flooding that takes place and the storms and, and the rain and tree branches and, and logs that are floating down and wreaking havoc on whatever kind of crafts are going along the, the river. River traffic had all kinds of different names for things, for different kinds of dangers. Some they called Sawyers, and that's where Mark Twain gets this like, idea of Tom Sawyer. I mean, even his own pseudonym, Mark Twain, was, was river language. And trying to mark how far, the, what's the depth of the water, and Twain means two. So it's like Mark or Mark Twain, and it becomes his pen name. Uh, well, Tom Sawyer, a Sawyer was a, a, a log or a tree that was mostly submerged in the water. Usually one end of it would be embedded in the river, so it wasn't just floating all down, but it, it kind of kept rocking back and forth. That's why I called it a saw-yer, because uh, it, it felt like, it looked like kind of this saw going back and forth, and it would wreak havoc into whatever vessel happened to hit it. There were other dangers they called preachers, where this was a, a tree that was stuck in the, in the river, but it kept bouncing up and down, kind of a preacher bowing, uh, kind of in prayer, going up and down and causing problems and, and danger for whatever river, river traffic there was too. There were dangers called planters, and that was a tree branch or a log that was, so, it was stuck in the ground, it was like planted there, lodged in the river bottom, and, and that became an obstacle that had to be navigated around. There were sleepers, another danger, and that was a log that was so waterlogged that it floated just beneath the surface of the river. Hard to see. And you hit one of those sleepers and it can rip a hole open in your hull and cause your boat to sink. There were others called rafts or wooden islands. And that's where all kinds of, of tree branches and debris had collected together until it was this floating island that moving down the river along with you. And you don't want to hit it. I mean, river traffic was tricky on any river really, but for some reason, especially along the Missouri, the river destruction, and beyond the literal, at one point on this journey, right at the, when section 61 comes, W.W. Phelps, who was part of this, this group of elders returning, he had an open vision of the destroyer riding upon the waters. So it's not just the dangerous, it's the diabolical. And so he and the other missionaries are concerned about this. There's actually been, I mean, speaking of, of the destroyer, not just the river destruction, but the destroyer himself, there have been all kinds of, of friction between the elders. At one point, Oliver Cowdery had to chasten them all and warn them that if they didn't shape up, real danger could be on its way. It's a lot like, we're, we're more familiar with Zion's camp, which was another journey of elders of the church trying to go and redeem Zion. We'll get to that later on in the Doctrine and Covenants. But a lot of friction there too. I don't, don't think too far less of these brethren. If you've ever been on trek, you know that, that Nephi's tend to turn into Laman and Lemuel's uh, the, the longer you're on this thing. And so part of the challenge of the journey is the difficulty of it. It brings out the natural man and woman in each of us. And that's what was happening with these elders. So forget about the, the wrath and strife among the congregations of the wicked. There's some wrath and strife even between them. And sadly, sometimes that happens in the mission field. Sometimes that happens in our wards and stakes that we're just not getting along. The closer you are, the more friction there is. And that can be tricky. So section 61 is given to these saints that are recognizing the dangers all around them. The physical dangers of the river destruction 
and the spiritual dangers of the destroyer that it seems to be riding right alongside them. I mean, if there's anyone who doesn't want them to reach their destination, to go build a temple to be endowed with power from on high, it's him. If there's anyone who doesn't want them to make a difference along the way in blessing lives, it's going to be the destroyer that's right there along the, the river with them. Well, with all that in mind, section 61 begins, Behold and hearken unto the voice of him who has all power, who is from everlasting to everlasting, even Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. It's a similar introduction to what we saw back in section 60, verse 4. I'm the Lord, I rule in the heavens above, I'm over the, the armies of the earth. But here, you saw the destroyer, and you see the, the power of this river. Well, you want to see all power, then look to me. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm Alpha and Omega. I've got this. I'm able to do mine own work, remember? Verse 2 then, Behold, verily thus saith the Lord unto you, O ye elders of my church, who are assembled upon this spot, whose sins are now forgiven you. For I, the Lord, forgive sins, and am merciful unto those who confess their sins with humble hearts. Again, that's a lot like what we saw back in, in section 60, verse 7. I'm able to make you holy. Your sins are forgiven you. This is the journey. I know it's hard. I get it. Believe me how many treks I've been on. Children of Israel, I mean, murmuring like every other chapter. Laman and Lemuel through the wilderness, I understand what you're up against. I'm here to forgive your sins. I'm merciful if you will confess them, if you'll humble yourself. But it's this pride that's causing this friction between you. Verse 3, here's some chastisement. Yes, I'm merciful, I'll forgive your sins, but I'm also going to call you out for them. And here's this one. Verily I say unto you that it is not needful for this whole company of mine elders to be moving swiftly upon the waters whilst the inhabitants on either side are perishing in unbelief. Now this seems to be a gentle course correction of what, they're, what they were told to do back in section 60 verse 14. Where you're supposed to be speedy, but be careful that you're not in too much haste. And you're like, uh, what, 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 where am I? Too fast? Too slow? How do I get into the Goldilocks zone here? Well, the Lord's trying to help them get there. Yes, you're crossing speedily, but too speedily to make a difference. That's one bummer about being on the river, is the current just sweeps you downstream and you end up passing all kinds of opportunities to make a difference along the way. And that's what I'm asking you to do. I felt that as a missionary, where I'd be pedaling my bike as quickly as I could to get to my next appointment. But on the way, you'd see all kinds of people and houses and opportunities to share the gospel that you weren't able to take because I can't miss this next appointment. Now, I get that. There are those kinds of constraints. But sometimes we end up constraining ourselves. Remember fear of man? We're not opening our mouth. Remember hiding our talent? Remember idling away our time? These chapters today are so powerful for those who are, are called to serve and share the gospel. Remember that great hymn. There are chances for work all around, just now. Opportunities right in your way. You get that sense from these missionaries moving swiftly upon the waters? You're missing opportunities. On either bank, there are women with issues of blood that are going to continue suffering because you're so adamant to get to Jairus' daughter as quickly as you can. I remember an experience when I was a teenager and we were doing a sub for Santa. 
which is such a wonderful service project during the Christmas season. And, and our youth groups had, had put in all kinds of time and amazing generosity on the part of the board members. And we had a Christmas to beat all Christmases for a family that lived in a, in a poorer part of town. And I remember we were so excited, all filled with the Christmas spirit and, and vans filled with presents. And, and all these youth started pouring out. We, got, we drove to this part of town. It was through a, a poorer apartment complex and we were walking through just overloaded with gifts. And I remember how excited we were because we were going to get to this family and just overwhelm them. Well, we did. And I barely remember the looks on their faces. I'm sure that they were beaming. But the looks that I do remember, the ones that seem to be seared into my soul, are the looks of little children that heard the commotion as a bunch of youth, loud teenagers, excited to go be Santa for a day, were coming through their apartment complex. And I remember walking down the sidewalks to get to our destination and passing a lot of little children on the way who looked up and saw that we obviously had gifts to give. We were wearing the orange vest or the orange apron. We were overloaded with presents that weren't for them. And as it dawned on them, there's this expectation, this hope. Remember, that's the woman with the issue of blood. This is Jesus who can save me. And imagine if he rushed past so quickly that she couldn't even reach out and touch the hem of his garment. That was us speedily traveling to our intended destination. This is the family we're giving these gifts to. But to see those who were expectant and hopeful and recognizing in us gifts that we could have spared for them too. I'm still haunted by that experience. I'm grateful for sub for Santa activities. I just wish that we could give them to everyone. Well, with the gospel, we can. Beware of moving swiftly upon the waters when inhabitants on either side are perishing in unbelief. Slow down. Don't be so hasty that you miss opportunities to serve right now. Verse 4, Nevertheless, I suffered it, that ye might bear record. Behold, there are many dangers upon the waters, and more especially hereafter. Now, what did he suffer? Did he suffer them to, to behold the destroyer and recognize this danger? Did he suffer them to, to sense the, the danger of the river destruction? Did he suffer them with all this friction between them? Did he suffer them to, to recognize that there were people that they were missing? Remember, all of this stuff along the journey is meant for the good of the church. We saw that back in section 60, verse 9. That's the intent I sent you. All of these experiences, if you can consecrate them to me and to your good, then you'll end up using them to bless other people. So whether it's being more careful along your, your path, whether it's recognizing the destroyer for what he is and resisting his temptation, whether it is trusting in, in my justification and sanctification to be able to make you holy in spite of your mistakes, whether it's recognizing the joy that you feel when you share the gospel and the sorrow when you recognize that there are people that you've missed. All of those things the Lord suffers so that we can bear record of the things that we've learned from our successes and our failures, from our safety and our danger, from our, our facing the destroyer, as well as our coming unto Christ, the Alpha and Omega himself. 
bear record of all of those things. Now, there are many dangers upon these waters. And, more especially hereafter, in other words, they're only going to get worse. Verse 5, he says, I, the Lord, have decreed in mine anger many destructions upon the waters, yea, and especially upon these waters. Missouri is worse than the Mississippi in this case. But, he continues, and this is where the curriculum department chose their title for this lesson, which is a great one. Verse 6, Nevertheless, all flesh is in mine hand. He that is faithful among you shall not perish by the waters. So yes, it's dangerous. Yes, there are destructions decreed. Here more than anywhere. But I've got this. You get the sense of the reassurance he's given them repeatedly through these sections? I'm Alpha and Omega. Uh, I have all power. I'm over the armies of the earth. I've got this. All flesh is in mine hand. Just be faithful. And I will help you navigate around any of life's Sawyers or sleepers or preachers or planters or, or rafts, whatever there happens to be floating along around you in this river. The journey of mortality is fraught with dangers and difficulties. But make sure I'm in the boat with you. Is there room in the canoe for, for one more passenger? Will you invite aboard him who can say, peace be still? No matter how turbulent the waters, will you be faithful to me? In verse 7, the instructions continue, Wherefore it is expedient that my servant Sidney Gilbert and my servant W.W. W. Phelps be in haste upon their errand and mission. So there's still a need for speed. Again, this is so tricky. Hurry up, slow down, uh, go speedily, but not in haste. Uh, you, but go fast on this. Like, ah, how do I know? The gas or the brake, what, what am I supposed to be pushing? Well, you're going to have to follow the Spirit. You've got to be faithful to me. If I'm with you, I'll be able to help you navigate. Verse 8, Nevertheless, I would not suffer that you should part until you were chastened for all your sins, that you might be one that you might not perish in wickedness. Remember, we're trying to establish Zion, and you have to be Zion before you can go build Zion. It has to be your lifestyle before your location. So you've got to be one, one heart, one mind. That's why I'm trying to get you close. Yes, that causes friction, but it can also lead to incredible unity and strength. If you will be chastened for your sins, if you can have a soft enough heart when I break it, if you can offer me a contrite spirit as I'm trying to work with you, you're supposed to be preaching to the congregations of the wicked, not becoming wicked yourself. So, lest you perish in wickedness, I allowed some of this to happen as you're cruising quickly down the river so that I could chasten you for all of your sins. Now, verse 9, Verily I say, it behooveth me that you should part. Wherefore, let my servant Sidney Gilbert and William W. Phelps take their former company, and let them take their journey in haste, that they may fill their mission, and through faith they shall overcome. Faith is going to be the key in all of this. Verse 10 reiterates that. Inasmuch as they are faithful, they shall be preserved. And I, the Lord, will be with them. Again, make sure there's room for me in your canoe. Now verse 11, let the residue take that which is needful for clothing. And 12, let my servant Sidney Gilbert take that which is not needful with him as you shall agree. This is similar to what we saw back in section 60, that you're going to need some money to, to return uh, the, the return trip back to Ohio. Uh, if you need it, take it, spend it, keep it. Uh, if you don't need it, then return whatever is left over. So you get that same sense here in verse 11 and 12. 
Sidney Gilbert, after all, is the bishop's agent. And so he's the perfect person to, to bring these unneedful things. See, verse 11, if it's needful, if you need it for clothing, then take it. But verse 12, anything that's not needful, here's your excess, your surplus. Give it back to, to Sidney Gilbert, and uh, that way it's available for other people. And then in verse 13, he gets back to this idea of the waters, the river they happen to be on. That's interesting stuff, and, I, and I'm hoping that we can see some application in our day. That goes far beyond anyone that in the 21st century who happens to be riding by canoe down the Missouri River. I doubt there's a lot of people in that specific circumstance. So uh, we, we want to read the next few verses with an eye to applicability for all of us worldwide, uh, however close or far we happen to be from river traffic. Verse 13, Now behold, for your good I gave unto you a commandment concerning these things. Remember, commandments are always for our good. It, once we have the paradigm shift, crowned with commandments, not a few. And I, the Lord, will reason with you as with men in days of old. He's used that phrase several times in the Doctrine and Covenants so far. This will be reasonable. This will be logical. I, I, it has to be spiritual too. I speak to the head and the heart, but I do want the head involved. Verse 14, Behold, I, the Lord, in the beginning blessed the waters. But in the last days, by the mouth of my servant John, I cursed the waters. We see a little Genesis there with days of creation. We see a little book of Revelation there in, in the last days. Verse 15, Wherefore the days will come that no flesh shall be safe upon the waters. Hmm, remember that phrase, no flesh shall be safe. Remember that phrase from Joseph Smith Matthew, that unless, speaking of the last days and the signs of the times, that unless those days are shortened, there shall no flesh be saved we got to speed things up. We've we got to unplug the scoreboard before the, the other side gets all the momentum and ends up winning the game. It, without the shortening of days, without faithfulness to God, without, if we keep procrastinating the day of our repentance, there shall no flesh be saved. Well, similarly, here, the days will come, getting closer and closer to the last days, that no flesh shall be safe upon the waters. Now, does this mean we should never go boating or water skiing or swimming or surfing or, or scuba diving or any? Are we supposed to all be inland saints? Well, be careful about taking this too literally. Remember we talked about that with the signs of the times, that so often if it's, if it's purely literal and, and the, the, the sun being darkened, well, that would destroy all life on the planet. Uh, or the moon turning to blood, mm, a great orbiting blood clot, that doesn't sound realistic. Uh, are there literal components of these signs of the times? Yes. But look at them also with an eye to, to metaphor and to, to symbolism. Because the Lord is trying to help us understand something here that goes far beyond the Missouri River, or waters in general for that matter. So what might that mean? No flesh safe upon the waters. What's wrong with waters? We'll see later in this revelation that it's not just water is bad and that's just how it works. Because he'll even say later on, hey, keep, keep going on your journey. If you want to go on land, great. If you want to go on water, fine. It's like, wait, what? This can be, these can be confusing sections, I'll admit. It's like fast or slow, what, what am I supposed to do? Water, land, what am I supposed to do? Here it sure seems like water's a no-no, but later he's like, yeah, if you want to go by the water, that's fine with me. It, it doesn't matter. It's like, what are you talking about? Well, let's think metaphorically about rivers and about water, as opposed to land, and what might be some of the principles the Lord is trying to warn us about. What is it about rivers and water that make things so dangerous 
to the point that no flesh shall be safe there. As I've pondered this, and I invite you to do the same, if you can come up with uh, other analogies or, or metaphors or symbols behind, that's the beauty of symbolism. That's why the temple is so richly symbolic. If, if a, a picture is worth a thousand words, then a symbol is worth a thousand lessons. And it's up to us over a lifetime to just peel away those layers and see line upon line and truth upon truth revealed to us through that symbolic language. So as you come up with insights about rivers and water, put them in the, in, the, in the comments. I would love to learn from you. Mutual edification, right? Well, as I've pondered it, one, for example, in the, in the creation story, when it, when it says that God divides light from darkness, there's a great metaphor of, can I discern between good and evil? I mean, that was section 50, right? The light groweth brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. If it doesn't edify, if it's not bright, then it's not of God. A great metaphor. But then next, when he separates land from water, again, if we're talking about uh, becoming something very good, if we're letting God create us, then what does it mean for me to be able to separate or distinguish between land and water? I mean, so many of the early days of creation were about dividing things. So then later, the, the later days of creation were about adding things. We're dividing and uh, division and addition. There's our arithmetic as far as creation is concerned. But what does it mean to divide land from water? Well, think about it in, th in this way. Like when Jesus walked upon the water, and Peter did for a little while as well, what was so miraculous about that? You're not supposed to be able to do that. I mean, water isn't stable. It's not firm. It's constantly shifting. Ah, okay, I think I'm starting to see something. If you think about cultural currents and where they're carrying you, as opposed to being grounded on gospel ground, to, to have the wise man built his house upon the rock? Well, if the foolish man built his house upon the sand, I don't even know how foolish a person would be to build it upon the water. And yet, we see people doing that constantly, licking their fingers and trying to catch the winds of prevailing popular opinion. What's cool today? If I'm so concerned about the fear of man that's keeping me from standing up for solid gospel truth, because I'd rather be on the water and just flowing wherever the world seems to be taking me. Oh, you got to be careful with that. Especially since water, what are rivers and water doing? All they're up to is trying to find the easiest way downhill. That's all water does. That's what I love about the power of Enoch's words in Moses 6, where he says because of his language, he was able to turn rivers out of their course. That to me, again, symbolically is what missionaries do. They take people that are natural men and natural women that are just trying to find the easy path downhill and they turn those rivers out of their course. In fact, they help them begin flowing upstream, which is a, which is a miracle of its own. Remember the way Isaiah describes the temple and that all nations flow to the mountain of the Lord? If it's the mountain of the Lord, it's uphill. Things don't flow uphill. They flow downhill. They take the easy path out. But to turn people to the Lord to the point that they are drawn to God and they end up flowing uphill to come to the mountain of the Lord's house. That is countercultural. That is swimming upstream. That is rejecting the ebbs and flows of, of cultural fads or the go with the flow mentality that most people have. This is firmness and faithfulness.
This is building upon the rock of the Redeemer. In fact, it was that constantly shifting nature of, of water and rivers that wreaked such havoc, especially in the Missouri River. You want a fascinating book to read? Get Mark Twain, again, Mr. Mississippi River himself, with the hero of his literature named after one of those dangers on the river, Tom Sawyer. The way he describes river boating and, and piloting, I mean, he does it in, in Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, but if you really want to get it, then read Life on the Mississippi. It's an amazing book that just describes what was life like along rivers. And, I mean, true to his, his humor, uh, Twain makes fun of it left and right, and it, it's, it's a great read. But as a boy growing up in the Mississippi himself and just dreaming of life on the river, he describes that the ultimate goal for every boy was to become a riverboat pilot. I mean, forget who cares about President of the United States. You, get, you know the river. But knowing the river was intensely challenging because the river was always changing. That's its nature. It's not this fixed, immutable, eternal truth of beginning to end and Alpha and Omega and I am the Lord. It is just, it's what's popular this week and what's, what's society saying now and, and it's just working its way. And in fact, it's eating away and eroding land on either side, which then causes continual change. The way Mark Twain describes it is he compares the, the river to like picture a street in, in New York City. But a riverboat captain has to know the, the lay of the land, or in this case, the, 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 the way of the river, so perfectly that if you were to just kind of be dropped off in the middle of the street in the, in the pitch black night in New York City, look around and immediately know what intersection you're at. It's like, can you name every cobblestone, so to speak? Because on the river, you have to have memorized hundreds and hundreds of miles that are constantly shifting as banks of, of the river are being eroded and, and, thing, and the river itself is moving through its course. Twain said, in order to be a pilot, a man had got to learn more than any one man ought to be allowed to know. And he must learn it all over again in a different way every 24 hours. Because again, it's constantly shifting. He said, I haven't got brains enough to be a pilot. And if I had, I wouldn't have strength enough to carry them around unless I went on crutches. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I love Twain's humor. It's like, man, to have brains that big, you'd be crushed under the weight to the point that you'd need crutches to walk around in. Elder Maxwell used to once used this, uh, this beautiful analogy of, of flying over Europe and, and trying to be in tune with each culture whose airspace you happen to be in. So as you're flying over Portugal, are you good with your Portuguese? Oh, forget about that. We're in Spain now. Just switch over to Spanish. Oh, you were so close. Now we're over French airspace. So now speak French. Oh, German now. Oh, Austrian, Polish. Right? You understand the challenge of trying to keep up with a world that is constantly changing? No wonder there is no flesh that is safe. If that's the kind of life you're trying to lead. It takes more than brains to the point of needing crutches. It takes faith. It takes trust in the unchanging truths of an everlasting God. It's deciding to be on land instead of water. Now, one other insight that might be helpful. It's interesting to think about civilization throughout history and realize that so often the world's great civilizations began by rivers. If you think about uh, Mesopotamia, 
the Fertile Crescent. Well, what made it fertile? Rivers did. In fact, Mesopotamia, Meso, Middle, Potamia, there's rivers. It's in between the rivers. There's the Tigris and the Euphrates. And so Babylon grows up right there. Uh, the Nile River and the great civ Egyptian civilization that grew up there because the river would bring life to it. I mean, you look from a, you know, a satellite image of Egypt and there's not a whole lot of population out in the desert, but right along that, that green sliver, life is there. I mean, name a major city, a major population center, and more likely than not, there's a, a major river right alongside it. I mean, St. Louis is where they're headed for now, and that's, there it is on the Mississippi. Take it south and there you got New Orleans. Or go back to Europe and you got the London, you got London on the Thames, you have Rome on the Tiber, you have Paris on the Seine. That's just what you do. You're either on the coast, so you have sea traffic, uh, or you're, you tend to be on a river. It's easier for navigation uh, and for trade and all those other kinds of things. But the challenge is trade and navigation and so on also bring a lot of outside influences that may or may not be helpful to you. In fact, what are two great metaphors for the wicked world that the scriptures tend to use? Babylon and Egypt. Those are river civilizations. And honestly, not only are outside influences a danger on the river, but also it's easy to forget God. Because who needs him when the river's going to flood every year and, and, and nourish the soil of Egypt? Who needs him when, when it's, it's all right here? I can irrigate now compare that to two other civilizations, if you want to call it that. Religious ones in this case. Think of Jerusalem and think of Salt Lake City. Neither one of which has much of, of, by way of river to boast of. Now Jerusalem, you think, oh, the Jordan. But the Jordan was not a water source for the people of Jerusalem. It was, it was hundreds of feet below in, the, in this Jordan Rift Valley. It's by Jericho. It's not by Jerusalem. Jerusalem's up in the mountains, the mountain of the Lord, right? And so if you're going to have, have crops and food, it's not going to be because of rivers. You're going to have to pray for rain. Now think about that. Because same with Salt Lake City, uh, a city in the desert. And yeah, there's a Jordan River, but it's not, it's not much of one. Uh, and yes, there's City Creek, and there, but Creek, that's all it is. In fact, I always laughed when I lived in the South and I'd go back East and, they, and, the, and they'd talk about, you know, the Smoky Mountains or the Appalachians. And I'm like, mountains? These are not mountains. Come out West, we'll show you mountains. But then they'd be like, well, oh yeah? You call those rivers? Those aren't rivers. We'll show you the Mississippi and the Ohio and the, the Tennessee and the Missouri and the Cumberland and, and the Potomac. And I mean, those are rivers. You want mountains? Come West. But you want rivers? Go East. Well, Salt Lake City's in the West with amazing mountains, but not much by way of river. And yes, the early pioneers tried to irrigate as best they could, but kind of what are you, what are you left with? You have to rely upon God. That to me is one of the great, I don't know, geographical lessons about where God has had his people set up camp. I don't want you along a river where it's easy to forget about me. Because the river just keeps running. The water keeps flowing. There's always enough to, to provide for your crops. But instead to put you in more desert places. Without the luxury of knowing that the water is just going to keep flowing. You have to pray for rain. And in the process, you, you come to rely upon me. You remember me. There's nowhere else to turn.
Yes, the saints, Nauvoo was right on the Mississippi. But that wasn't by choice. It was like, we're here because we have to be. No one else will take us. Uh, Zion, Independence, Jackson County, Missouri. It'll be interesting. I, I really do wonder when God says, that's the center spot. That's where I want you to be. But there's, and there's river, but it's Missouri River. And I wonder if that's part of our challenge of establishing Zion along a river and yet having to turn our faith to God instead of rejecting him and relying upon easier means, especially this most dangerous of rivers, this river destruction. Can we gather there and turn it into a place of peace? Can we invite people to stop just flowing downstream and instead flowing up to the mountain of the Lord's house? Well, like I said, I'm sure there are many other metaphors and, and lessons embedded in this, this symbolism of river. And please teach me anything that comes to mind. We just have to build upon the rock. Otherwise, no flesh safe upon the waters. Now back to section 61 in verse 16. It shall be said in days to come that none is able to go up to the land of Zion upon the waters, but he that is upright in heart. Even that seems to be the flowing uphill, to go up to the land of Zion. You're not going to be able to do that just following the ways of the world. You're going to have to be upright in heart. Only then can you find your way there. Verse 17, As I, the Lord, in the beginning cursed the land, even so in the last days have I blessed it. In its time, for the use of my saints, that they may partake the fatness thereof. Remember section 58, the feast of fat things? We kind of get a role reversal here. If in the beginning the water was good and the land was bad, and now we're flipping it and the water's bad and the land is good, is, is this part of this, last shall be first and, last shall, and first shall be last? Is it a sense of, of trusting God in terms of what he tells you right now and not just uh, trusting in, in, in things that he's told people in the past? What's my current circumstance? I'm going to need current revelation. Thank heaven for living prophets. Verse 18, Now I give unto you a commandment, that what I say unto one, I say unto all. So here's general applicability. That you shall forewarn your brethren concerning these waters, that they come not in journeying upon them, lest their faith fail, and they are caught in snares. So whatever pitfalls you've seen when you've been swept downstream, when, you, when you've just gone with the flow, warn other people that the worldly ways are not what's going to help you reach your ultimate destination. Be careful about your journey. Don't let your faith fail. Don't be caught in these snares and sawyers and sleepers and preachers and planters and, and rafts. There are dangers all about you, but there are also opportunities all around you to make a positive difference in the world. Verse 19, I the Lord have decreed, and the destroyer rideth upon the face thereof. And I revoke not the decree. This really is what you're up against, the destroyer of all happiness and righteousness and peace. And you've given in to him, in a way, with all of this friction and fighting, this wrath and strife among yourselves. It's not just Oliver Cowdery chastening them. It's the Lord chastening them too. He says it in verse 20. I, the Lord, was angry with you yesterday. Ouch. Thankfully, it's just a comma, though, not an exclamation point. But today, mine anger is turned away. Do you get a sense of how merciful the Lord is through these revelations? He chastens them for their, for their errors and their sins. But he keeps reassuring them. I'm able to make you holy. 
justification, sanctification. I'm merciful to those who come unto me. Here, I was angry with you yesterday, admittedly. I've had to say this to my children sometimes. Like, yes, I was frustrated yesterday. But it's behind us. And I forgive you. Let's start again. And the Lord is saying just that. But today, mine anger is turned away. I'm amazed that he doesn't even let the sentence end with his anger. Like I said, it's a comma, not a period. I, I want you to know in the same breath of my, of my justice that my mercy is right there alongside it. There's a beautiful passage in the book of Lamentations. And the title of that book says it all. Jeremiah wrote it after writing the book of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, he is constantly crying repentance to a people who aren't listening to him. And and because they reject the the second and third and infinite chances that the Lord gives them, they they do end up being destroyed by the Babylonians, a river civilization, right? Well, in their destruction, now it's up to to Jeremiah to lament over their, their sad fate. And in that brief book of scripture, that's what he's doing. These lamentations. But in one of them, he says this, and I love this passage. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. So much destruction, so much death, but the survivors, we who are still here, it's because of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. He has compassion for us. Come with passion, suffering, or feeling. He feels with us. He suffers with us. His compassions fail not. And then this beautiful phrase, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Even when we're not faithful to him, God is faithful to us. Great is his faithfulness. And as a result, his compassions are new every morning. Or that other verse, that uh, sorrows endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. Well, why joy in the morning? Because I'm getting a second chance. The Lord is wiping the slate clean. I, I get a new beginning. You don't have to wait for New Year's Day. Every day is New Year's. A chance to begin again and do better and be better because of him who is the best of all. I, the Lord, was angry with you yesterday, but my compassions are new every morning. So pick yourself up and try again. Today, my anger is turned away. Verse 21, wherefore, let those concerning whom I have spoken that should take their journey in haste. Again, I say unto you, let them take their journey in haste. Get up, get going. Verse 22, and it mattereth not unto me after a little, if it so be that they fill their mission, whether they go by water or by land. This is what I was referring to earlier. Let this be as it is made known unto them according to their judgments hereafter. Now verse 22 is fascinating. You get back to this idea of balancing agency and inspiration. It mattereth not unto me. Well, after a little. Right now it matters. Okay, I want you to do it in a certain way. But after a while, it doesn't matter at all. Right now, it's probably time to get out of your canoe. It's dangerous. I mean, if you only get three months of navigable uh, river flow, uh, you're probably not in those three months. Uh, Get out. You've got people on either side, on either riverbank that need you. They're perishing in unbelief. So so share the gospel with them. But after a little season, and then it doesn't matter. If you want to get back in the river, I mean, especially if you're getting closer to St. Louis and you're going to use the Mississippi or the Ohio, uh, whatever it takes, I leave it to you. 
This is not a blanket, uh, permanent condemnation of uh, anything having to do with water. I mean, I'll, yes, I just taught several principles where water is uh, a metaphor for bad things, but Jesus does call himself the living water. So there's great metaphors for, for positive things as well. But I'm going to leave that up to you. You can go by water, you can go by land. But I also love the end. Let it be as it's made known unto them. So there's, in, that's revelation. There's the inspiration side. According to their judgments hereafter. Oh, there's the agency side. Remember, the Lord's always proving these contraries. I want you to grow up in me. And in me, okay, I'm involved, but you're the one that's got to grow up. So we've got to study it out in your mind and then ask and I'll confirm. Do your homework and, I'll, and then you'll receive the revelation. Or you provide the momentum and I will provide the direction. Remember, no power steering. <laughs> you got to move and it's easier to, to turn the wheel. Your judgments and my making known. Verse 23, now concerning my servant, Sidney Rigdon, Joseph Smith Jr., and Oliver Cowdery. Remember there, there's this trio that's going straight to, to uh, St. Louis and then on to Cincinnati. Let them come not again upon the waters. So the rest of you, if you want to get back to it, that's fine. But you three, don't come back to the waters. Save it be upon the canal while journeying unto their homes. Or in other words, they shall not come upon the waters to journey, save upon the canal. What is it about a canal that's different? Well, canals, you have, you've put in all this effort to control the elements in some ways so that you can make things safe. Isn't that what Zion is trying to do, to control the natural man in each of us, to put it off so that we can become saints through the atonement of Christ? Uh, I mean, the river is too unpredictable and too shifting, but can we channel it? Again, Enoch turning the river out of its course. Can we make a canal? where the world is not controlling us. We're controlling the world. That's what Zion is going to be asked to do. So Joseph, Sidney, Oliver, get, get used to some canal work. Spiritually speaking, you'll be involved in it for the rest of your life. Now, verse 24, Behold, I, the Lord, have appointed a way for the journeying of my saints. That's where I'm getting the title for, for this lesson. I'm appointing it. I'm providing it. There is a way for the journeying. I want to walk alongside you. I want room uh, within the canoe. If you'll come with me and I with you, walk with me, he says to Enoch. There is a way for the journeying of my saints. Are we journeying with him? And behold, this is the way, that after they leave the canal, they shall journey by land, inasmuch as they are commanded to journey and go up unto the land of Zion. So how, that's how they're going to continue. A little bit of water, a little bit of land. Verse 25, they shall do it like unto the children of Israel, pitching their tents by the way. I mean, historians call Brigham Young the Mormon Moses, where he is leading the, the house of Israel on this journey toward the promised land. And there's amazing parallels in that pioneer exodus. We sometimes think of Zion's camp as another example of, of Israel on the move. And in fact, Brigham Young, that Mormon Moses, actually credited Joseph Smith. So, forget about me, I'm not the Moses. I learned it all from Joseph Smith on Zion's camp. Well, even earlier to that, this trip down to Zion, the first one, and now their journey back home, that's really the first time that they have this, this, this scriptural or spiritual parallel to the ancient house of Israel where they are leaving a river slash world situation to find their way to a rain slash spiritual situation. There's a lot more parallels there too. We'll talk about those when we get to section 136, uh, which is about those pioneers headed west. 
Verse 26, Behold this commandment you shall give unto all your brethren. That's part of the way for the journey, God giving commandments. There's the inspiration side. Will we exercise our agency to follow? 27, Nevertheless, unto whom is given power to command the waters, unto him it is given by the Spirit to know all his ways. Sound a little like Moses? There are times, again, the water's pushing you around, but there's other times you've got to push around the water. You're making a difference in the world. Instead of letting the world make all of its differences in you. Maybe that's back to that canal analogy. This is Moses parting the Red Sea. This is uh, Joshua uh, halting the flow of the Jordan River. This is Enoch turning rivers uh, out of their course. Or Isaiah's prophecy of the river flow of people flowing to the mountain of the Lord. Power to command the water. Amazing phrase. Those people... They have the spirit to know all of God's ways. When should I do this or when should I do that? When is water safe? When should I stay on land? When should I go speedily? When should I not be in haste? How do I navigate this journey of mine? Well, it's through the Holy Ghost. It's always through the spirit. Verse 28, Wherefore, let him do as the spirit of the living God commandeth him, whether upon the land or upon the waters, as it remaineth with me to do hereafter. Yeah, that's the key. It mattereth not. You cannot go amiss. Some things are left totally up to you. Other things, it does really matter. But you're going to have to tap into my spirit to understand the Lord's will for you in this given situation. Because it's always situation specific. Right now, as opposed to later. Here, as opposed to there. Fast, slow, water, land, all of this. Trust the Holy Ghost's direction. Verse 29, unto you is given the course for the saints, or the way for the saints of the camp of the Lord to journey. He will give it to us. He'll make it known. There's Leahona. I will point the way to the more fertile parts of the wilderness as you journey toward the promised land. In verse 30, again, verily I say unto you, my servants Sidney Rigdon, Joseph Smith Jr., and Oliver Cowdery, these big three, they shall not open their mouths in the congregations of the wicked until they arrive at Cincinnati. Remember, the others were supposed to open their mouths among the wicked, but not these three. I need you to get to Cincinnati. Then, in verse 31, at that place, they shall lift up their voices unto God against that people. Yea, unto him whose anger is kindled against their wickedness. A people who are well nigh ripened for destruction. Oh, they'll have their opportunity to cry repentance among wicked congregations. But theirs is going to be in Cincinnati. I actually had an interesting experience with a greenie that I was training. Amazing missionary, Elder Contreras. And Elder Contreras, we were, we were riding our bikes to, to I, don't, I can't even remember, I don't think it was to get to a, an appointment. We just had time. And we're riding our bikes along and we'd pass several people. And then I saw a group of people and I pulled my bike uh, up to them and we started, I started a conversation and asked them about if they were interested in the gospel. And it was interesting, after that conversation, Elder Contreras, you know, learning to be a missionary, and he was super gifted, he should have been training me, uh, but he asked, why did we pass some groups and, and then stop at this one? I mean, on, are we, I mean, how, how do you know? That's a great question for every beginning missionary to ask. In fact, for all of us to ask. I don't even know if I really had a great answer, but it was kind of like, I don't know, I just, I just felt like, like this was the place to go. These were, this were, these were the people to talk to. And I didn't feel that with those others. Now, I'm not saying that I'm perfectly in tune and it's like, no, 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 no. And, you know, ding, 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 ding. And there it is. I, I wish it were that easy. Sometimes with the Holy Ghost, it actually is. But often it's 
trial and error and we're learning and, and the Lord doesn't condemn us for our weakness and, and he gives us a new chance in the morning and, and so on. But there is, as I tried to explain to this greenie missionary I was training, it's just, for me, sometimes I'll pass somebody and if I feel a twinge of guilt, then I'll turn around and go back. But sometimes it's like, if I miss it and I get, and, and the spirit nudges like, yeah, you were off, then I'll try to go correct my mistake. I mean, it's tricky to know who to talk to and who not to, and when to go fast and when to go slow, and when on land and when on water. We're learning. We're growing up in God. No wonder the Lord is merciful to us. He needs to be. We're figuring it out. So for Joseph and Sidney and Oliver, don't speak here, do speak there. We've got to figure this out ourselves. Verse 32, from thence let them journey for the congregations of their brethren. You've endured the congregations of the wicked. Now head back to the congregations of your brethren. For their labors, even now, are wanted more abundantly among them than among the congregations of the wicked. Now are we starting to see why the, the overarching message from the start was to return speedily? Because there are missions yet to perform at home. Yes, bless people along the way. They're perishing in unbelief as well. But as far as this group is concerned, your labors are wanted more abundantly. That's maybe the question we should be asking the Lord. Today, where are my labors more abundantly wanted? That seemed to be uh, President Thomas S. Monson's style, where it was always like every day, what do, what do you need me to do today? If it's go dedicate a country for the preaching of the gospel or go you know, build a temple somewhere, fine, I'll do the big work. But if it's something as simple as go visit an old folks home or give a blessing at the hospital, what, where is my labor most abundantly wanted? These people were involved in the, in the preaching of the proclaiming of the gospel. But now it's time to go perfect the saints. Get back home to your home ward. There's work to be done in Kirtland. Believe me. And there's work to be done wherever we happen to be. Let that be part of our, our daily prayers. Where is my labor most abundantly wanted? Then in verse 33, now concerning the residue, not the big three, but everybody else. Let them journey and declare the word among the congregations of the wicked, inasmuch as it is given. And inasmuch as they do this, they shall rid their garments and they shall be spotless before me. Another example of God's mercy and the connection between teaching the gospel to others and receiving the fruits of the gospel for yourself, namely forgiveness of sin. I mean, if I'm crying repentance, then hopefully I'm repenting too. If I'm testifying of the power of the atonement, then hopefully I'm feeling its effect in my life as well. The Lord forgives his servants because they're serving him. Then in 35, let them journey together or two by two, as seemeth them good. Only let my servant Reynolds Cahoon and my servant Samuel H. Smith, with whom I am well pleased, be not separated until they return to their homes. And this for a wise purpose in me. Another fascinating verse where it's like, well, how do you guys want to do it? You want to go all one big group? That's fine. Would you rather go two by two? That's fine too. Now, Reynolds Cahoon, Samuel H. Smith, I do have specific instructions for you. You've got to do it. I'm well pleased with you. I'm not singling you out because I'm angry. I've done that on occasion too. But I'm well pleased. But don't be separated. For some reason, wise purpose in me, the two of you need to stick together for the rest of this journey. The rest, however you want to do it, two by two, in mass, totally up to you. Here's some inspiration. Here's some agency. It's all coming together in the same verse. 36, now verily I say unto you, and what I say unto one, I say unto all, again, universal applicability, be of good cheer, little children, 
for I am in your midst. I have not forsaken you. Yes, you're on the river destruction. Yes, you saw the destroyer upon the waters, but I'm here beside you in your canoe. So cheer up. Yes, I've chastened you, but I've also forgiven you. My compassions are new every morning. So good morning. Let's try again today with a smile on our face and cheer in our heart. You're just little children. I get it. And I'm patient with children. They're learning. They're growing up in God. Verse 37, Inasmuch as you have humbled yourselves before me, the blessings of the kingdom are yours. It's always about broken heart and contrite spirit. Are you being humble? No wonder the, the waters had to humble them, chasten them for their iniquity. But then 38, try again. Gird up your loins. Be watchful. Be sober. Look forth for the coming of the Son of Man, for he cometh in an hour you think not. Always seems to be second coming context behind these revelations. And then he ends, pray always that you enter not into temptation, that you may abide the day of his coming. Whether in life, there's the good news, or in death, there's the bad news. Actually, neither one's bad news. Either way, you can abide the day of my coming. Even so, amen. In a world that seems more attuned to rivers than rain, more like water than land, Oh, we do need to pray always. Temptation is all around us. And we need to learn to navigate those snares and snags. But also, opportunities to serve lie all around us as well. And as we exercise our agency and trust in the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, we'll know when to go fast and when to go slow and who to speak to and who not. The Lord wants to be with us. And He will be as long as we want to be with him. Section 62 then completes today's lesson. A brief revelation as Joseph Smith and the others are there along the Missouri River trying to follow the directions they've just been given and, and now getting a little bit more. Remember we were told that you who are going, Joseph will continue to receive revelation. I'll, I'll keep leading you line upon line. Well, here's the next line. 62 verse 1. Behold and hearken, O ye elders of my church, saith the Lord your God. And then Think of this introduction. Even Jesus Christ, your advocate, who knoweth the weakness of man and how to succor them who are tempted. That's one of my favorite self-disclosures on the part of Jesus Christ. We saw it back at the beginning of section 45, right? I am your advocate with the Father. I'm pleading your cause. Well, why is he so good at pleading our cause? Because he gets it. That's part of his condescension, con, with, descend, come down. He wants to be down with us. Just like compassion, to suffer with, to feel with. He knows our needs. To our weakness, he's no stranger. We sing that every Christmas. Well, hear the Lord, I'm your advocate, because I know the weakness of man. And remember, we talked about this last year in Ether 12:27. There's a difference between weakness and weaknesses or weakness and weak things, as Moroni describes it in that verse. Joseph Smith talks about that, the weakness of youth, but also the frailties and foibles. There's, there's, I made mistakes, but part of it's just because I'm human. And it's that humanness. It wasn't sinfulness that Jesus had to grapple with, but weakness he does understand. Remember in section 19 when he says that he's that the atonement was part of his finishing his preparations unto the children of men. I am completely prepared now.
to be merciful to them. Because I know how hard life can be when you're human and you're weak. I can help them navigate it because I've gone down the same river with them. I've been in the canoe. I can succor those who are tempted. And I know through my mortal side, thanks to my mother and that gift of mortality that I inherited from her, I know what temptation feels like. Thanks to my father's side, my divinity, my immortality, I had the power to overcome it, but I do know how strong that pull can be. Yes, I can walk on water, but I also know what it's like to be submerged beneath it. His baptism, after all, was in the Jordan River, the lowest body of fresh water on the planet. He truly did descend below all things. He didn't choose to walk across every water. He usually relied on the boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, just like every other mere mortal with whom he served. I love this verse. Jesus knows our weakness. He has wrapped our injured flesh around him, as is said in another beautiful song. He can succor us whenever we're tempted. It is, that's the, his preventative power and not just his curative power once we've succumbed to the temptation. Trust in the Lord's power to help you navigate the river. He knows, he, he doesn't need crutches. He has the brain to memorize every snag, every turn of the river, every change within the current. What is the way for the journeying of the saints? It's journeying alongside Jesus. He, he came to do just that. We just have to invite him aboard. In verse 2, Verily mine eyes are upon those who have not as yet gone up unto the land of Zion. Wherefore, your mission is not yet full. Remember the last uh, chapter, I, t I told you that they're, they're crossing, right? Ships passing in the night. Well, Joseph and others heading back home. They've already been to, to Zion. Others having left or took, taken a longer journey. Just keep going. Your mission is not yet full. Just because someone else's has ended and they're on their trip home, it doesn't mean for you just to turn around. You've still got work to do. So verse 3, Nevertheless, ye are blessed, for the testimony which ye have borne is recorded in heaven for the angels to look upon, and they rejoice over you, and your sins are forgiven you. There's forgiveness in every chapter so far. But I love the difference between what we saw in 60 to what we see here in 62. In 60, some of you are not well pleased because you have hidden your talent. You haven't opened your mouth. Or 61, you're letting the people on either side of the riverbank perish in unbelief, as opposed to these people in, in verse 3. No wonder they haven't made it to Zion yet. They've been spending so much time bearing witness along the way. Their speed is tempered by slowness. Yes, you haven't made it to Jairus' daughter yet. But imagine the impact you've had on the woman with the issue of blood. Maybe not the same amount of presence for that final destination, Subversana but you've left smiling children all along the way. I, I forgive you. I rejoice over you. Your testimonies are recorded in heaven so the angels can look upon them. Imagine an angel being, being oh, energized by my weak mortal testimony. And them just, I remember as a missionary on hard days when, when we'd been rejected a lot, and that's, that was most days. Sometimes we'd come back to our apartment and if we were really feeling down, we had a little, uh, well, we borrowed it from the church library. It was a little TV-VCR combo. That's how old I am. Uh, and I remember particularly there was a testimony that President James E. Faust bore shortly after his call to the first presidency that was 
energizing to me. That no matter how dejected and rejected I felt by other people, if I could just listen to President Faust bear his testimony, his, his sure witness of the Savior Jesus Christ and the restoration of his gospel, it just infused me with power. I felt that way about President or Elder McConkie's final testimony, that I will not know any better then than I know now that Jesus is the Christ. That testimony I looked upon and I rejoiced over because it strengthened me. Well, don't hide your light under a bushel. Don't bury your talent. Open your mouth. It shall be filled. And no matter how much people receive or reject your testimony here on earth, the angels in heaven themselves will look upon your words and rejoice over them. So give them something to write down. There they are with pens poised. Testify. Verse 4, and now continue your journey. Assemble yourselves upon the land of Zion. It is the place of gathering after all. And hold a meeting and rejoice together and offer a sacrament unto the Most High. I've heard it said that there is a 14th article of faith that says we believe in meetings and we have endured many meetings and hope to be able to endure all meetings. Uh, we have, I have a love-hate relationship with meetings. I've been to a lot of them. And sometimes meetings felt just like a meeting. Uh, it was President Packer who often said, it takes a really good meeting to beat no meeting at all. Well, there were, I've been to a lot that it would have been better just to have no meeting at all. But when it's a good meeting and the church is full of them, it is a chance to rejoice together. Remember, that's the section 50 ideal. When you're learning and teaching and giving and receiving by the power of the Holy Ghost, that's what they're trying to do. Get to Zion. Gather there. Have meetings. Rejoice. Offer a sacrament. Remember section 59. The Lord offers us his sacraments. Are we offering him ours? Then verse 5, then you may return to bear record. You've been testifying on the way down. Now you can testify on the way back. Yea, even altogether, or two by two, as seemeth you good, it mattereth not unto me. Only be faithful and declare glad tidings unto the inhabitants of the earth or among the congregations of the wicked. You're starting to see this theme develop throughout all these three sections for today. Agency and inspiration strike the balance. If you want to go all together, great. If you want to go two by two, great. Do it as seemeth you good. It doesn't matter to me. But then this beautiful clarification, but please be faithful. And please declare glad tidings all along the way. There are some things I totally leave up to you because they don't, really don't matter to me. Other things really do matter to me. And you being faithful, as long as your agency doesn't lead you away from me, then I trust you with your agency. The inspiration is typically there to make sure that you don't wander off in forbidden paths and get lost. So be faithful, whatever path you happen to choose. And as he says there, when you're out preaching to the inhabitants of the earth, even if they're the congregations of the wicked, which seem to be the, the common audience here, give them glad tidings. I think one of the best ways to avoid uh, strife or wrath or doubting is to preach glad tidings of great joy, which shall be unto all people. That's what angels do, right? Well, it's what angels on earth do too. And if it's gladness that we're sharing, greater happiness and peace and rest, like we talked about earlier, then no wonder there's no strife or wrath or doubt. There's no guilt trip. There's no pressure. There's no proof texting. 
There's no Bible bashing. There's no pressuring someone into joining the church. These are simply glad tidings. You want to come see my house? We just, we've been building it, and it's amazing. In fact, there's room in it for you. I won't say a, a word against the house that you've grown up in, but you're welcome to join us in this one. And then just wait for them to come. Verse 6, Behold, I, the Lord, have brought you together that the promise might be fulfilled. The gathering is part of the covenant that the faithful among you should be preserved and rejoice together in the land of Missouri. I, the Lord, promise the faithful. I cannot lie. It's Zion we're after. One heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, no poor among them. It's going to be there in Zion. I'm preserving you so you can rejoice there. And that's my promise. Verse 7, I, the Lord, am willing. We saw in the previous revelations that he is able. I can do my own work. I can make you holy. Here, I'm willing. I'm willing if any among you desire to ride upon horses or upon mules or in chariots, you shall receive this blessing. If he receive it from the hand of the Lord with a thankful heart in all things, there's a balance of agency and inspiration too. He's honoring their agency. How do you want to go? Before it was land or water? Fine, either way. In a group, two by two? Fine, either way. Here, horses, mules, chariots even, or wagons, whatever you call them in the, 20, in the, in the 19th century. You can do it if that's your desire. But also a few other ifs. Also, if you receive it from the hand of the Lord. So make your decision, but seek my confirmation. I am trying to balance. I'm trying to nudge you towards agency, but don't completely you know, run to the other side and, and imbalance yourself without uh, inspiration. Make sure you're receiving it from me and also receive it with a thankful heart. Remember God's pet peeves from last week. I want you to rejoice in it. I want to be able to rejoice in it too. So be, gra be grateful that gratitude connects giver and receiver. Then verse 8, these things remain with you to do according to judgment. There is agency. And the directions of the Spirit, there is inspiration. If we're going to grow up in Him, we've got to learn to balance both. And behold, verse 9, the kingdom is yours. And behold, and lo, I am with the faithful always, even so. Amen. Are we getting a sense of what our way for the journeying is supposed to look like? It's supposed to be alongside God. Whether we're on land or in water, whether we're in a chariot or in a canoe, make sure there is space for Jesus. Abide with us. Tis eventide. You've been with us along this journey to Emmaus or wherever we happen to be going. Will you stay? Will you continue with us? So many times throughout these three brief revelations, we've seen God trying to help us strike the balance between fast and slow, to be speedy but not in doing things in haste, to balance the needs of the daughter of Jairus with the needs of the woman with the issue of blood. We've seen God really honor the, the saints' agency and letting them know in certain areas it just doesn't matter. Do whatever seemeth right to you. I would rather you make mistakes in small decisions than in big ones. So let me give you some choices to make where you can't even go wrong. I just want you to get into the habit of deciding things. It's been amazing to me to watch President Nelson and all these decisions that are being made and changes that are being, taking place in the church. And I wonder if it's been a lifetime of being a surgeon where you are making life and death decisions constantly. And you, you just have to decide because not deciding is deciding. And, and he's deciding things. 
and to be uh, to surrounded by prophets and apostles, these 15 men, prophets, seers, and revelators, who are making decisions, who are exercising agency, even while they are seeking inspiration. And as the two come together, they help guide us on our journey home as well. Are we traveling in the right path? Are, are we preaching along the way? Are we open to God as he makes known unto us, line upon line, where to go and when to go and who to speak to and so on? And throughout it all, since we often beat ourselves up most over poor decisions that we've made, can we trust that God is merciful, that the Lord is our advocate, that he understands our weakness. He gets it that we sometimes get it wrong. To each of you unshaken saints out there, and to all who are striving to become one, I testify that the Lord does his own work, that he is able to make us holy. He's got this. He's got you in hand. So trust in him. Follow him. Join him on the journey. And he will bring you to the promised land.